Well, good morning. My name is Tom Shetlick. For those of you I don't know, it's great to be back here. Thank you very much for your gracious invitation. I bring you the greetings from Christians at Forge Road Bible Chapel and a good report of the work of the Lord in Baltimore. Um, as Alan mentioned, I had uh, received a special dispensation and have over the past months been doing uh, a good deal of work in and speaking in the book of Jeremiah. And so, uh, by your grace, I thought that that would be something we'd look at today. And we'll be working this morning from Jeremiah chapter 36. It's a pivotal chapter in the book. It records events that are uh, central to both the life of Jeremiah and to the history of Jerusalem and Judea. It's the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. Now, we don't usually think about it that way. Ask people who are familiar with the question, what's the longest book in the Bible? I think the answer you're going to get most often is Psalms. And Psalms, indeed, has the most number of chapters. It has the most number of verses. But Psalms is all poetry. And so a lot of the chapters and a lot of the verses are very short. In the original language, by word count, uh, Psalms is the third longest book in the Bible. Genesis is longer. And the longest book in the Bible was Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is so long because the ministry of Jeremiah is so long. We know more about Jeremiah than any other prophet. Jeremiah is first called by the Lord in what he describes as a youth, most likely a teenager. And Jeremiah is very specific about dates. He started to prophesy in the 13th year of King Josiah, what we call 627 B.C. Jehoiakim is one of the sons of Josiah. To situate us as to time, in chapter 36, Jeremiah is about 40 years old. He has been prophesying for 23 years of the crisis that's going to come upon Jerusalem and Judea. The actual besiegement and destruction of the city is 17 years distant, so we are sort of central to the story. The fourth year of Jehoiakim is 605 B.C., and it figures very prominently in this book. It is like the tipping point in this history. So far in Jeremiah's ministry, over those first 23 years, the message to Judah and Jerusalem was, repent, return to the Lord, come unto his protection before it's too late. By the end of that year, the message will change. It will no longer be repent before it's too late. It will just be, it's too late. Our discussion this morning is going to be unusual. I want to use this chapter to go off exploring a bit and to go and to do the best we can to go back to that time, to this fourth year of Jehoiakim, to go back to ancient Jerusalem and see what we can find. So Jeremiah chapter 36, and we will start with verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations. From the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day, it may be 
that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I propose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am confined. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplications before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gamariah, the son of Shapin, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, in the hearing of all the people. When Micaiah, the son of Gamariah, the son of Shapin, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house and into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting. Elishema, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shammaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gamariah, the son of Shapin, Zechariah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudai, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Shalamiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we shall surely tell the king of all these words. May the Lord bless, giving us a good understanding of his word together. Thank you. The history of almost any place and certainly of any ancient place, is very much driven by its geography and its topography, and so it is with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the Judean mountains. The image that you see is a cutout of the topography. You see it's a mixture of steep hills and deep valleys. This is not what you would see if you went to Jerusalem today. As early as the days of King Herod the Great, which is about 2,100 years ago, the hills began to be leveled and the ravines were filled in But this was the topography of Jerusalem as it existed in the days of Jeremiah and before. I've read some discussions that said that Jerusalem is built on five hills. Some say six, some say seven. How many hills there are, I suppose, depends on what you consider to be a hill. Four of the hills that you see here have names 
that you've probably heard of. To the east is the Mount of Olives. That is and has always been outside of the city of Jerusalem, so it is today. The small spur where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, that's what's called the city of David. That was the sum of the city which David took from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel 5. You see how small that actually is. That's only about 11 acres. Under Solomon, David's son, the city greatly expanded. The hill to the north is Mount Moriah. Today, that's called the Temple Mount. That's where Solomon built the temple to the Lord, where he built his own palace. The city also expanded westward, and the hill to the west is the largest, perhaps the most famous of all, that is Mount Zion. Just as important as the hills or the valleys, the large, wide valley that separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives is called the Kidron Valley. That's the valley that Jesus crossed on what we call Palm Sunday when he came down the Mount of Olives on a donkey, the multitude of his disciples shouting and glorifying God as he came through that valley and then up into the city. And that's the valley that Jesus crossed the other way on the night that he was betrayed after the Lord's Supper when he went up a little bit to the Mount of, on the Mount of Olives and he stopped in a walled garden to pray and to wait. The other valley I want you to note is the long and winding ravine that you see that wraps all the way around Mount Zion. Notice how different it is from the Kidron Valley. Notice how narrow it is, how deep it is, how dark it is. This is the valley of the sun called the Valley of the Son of Himmon place of repeated mention in the book of Jeremiah. This was the place of the worship of the god Moloch, the place of the topet, the word means the fire stove, the place of child sacrifice, and the killing of children established by King Manasseh, an abomination to the Lord, one of the reasons that judgment was coming upon the nation. We're going to focus our attention this morning on this small spur called the City of David, the original place of settlement in Jerusalem. This hill was originally occupied by the Jebusites. Book of 2 Samuel records how strongly fortified it was, making natural use of the, uh, or making use of the natural advantages, the deep valleys, the steep slopes. They boasted that the blind and the lame could defend the city. The region has been the study of considerable uh, digs by archaeologists, three primary expeditions. The first was led by a British uh, archaeologist, Robert McAllister, in the 1920s. The second by Dame Kathleen Kenyon in the 1960s, and then one by, the, by an Israeli archaeologist, Yigab Shiloh, in the 1970s and 80s. If you're wondering why this was the place that was first settled, why not one of the larger hills? Well, the answer is all about water. The, uh, the Gihon Spring is right at its base. It's a very reliable source of fresh water for drinking and irrigation. David built his palace there, and he brought in the Ark of the Covenant. When Solomon expanded his city, it expanded the city, he built the temple up on Mount Moriah, up in the north. And he built his own temple, his own palace there as well. 
And over the years, the Acropolis of the city followed. The Acropolis of the city moved up to Moriah. Solomon lived about 400 years before Jeremiah. And over those years, as the Acropolis moves up to Moriah, the city of David becomes a wealthy residential part of the city. In the time of Jeremiah, the palace, the temple, the marketplace, the business center, that's all up on Moriah. The city of David is affluent and residential. Homes of the rich and famous and well-connected in Jerusalem. And there, in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, the year opened with renewed warnings and dire events. The word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah. The word of the Lord is that came to the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Jeremiah said this is now the 23rd year that he'd been speaking the word of the Lord. For 23 years, the people, he had been calling the people to repentance and godliness. And it's not just him. The Lord had sent other prophets. Habakkuk is a contemporary. Jeremiah uses the image of the Lord rising early. This is important. This has to get done. Imploring the people again and again to turn back to him. Repent of your evil ways. Don't go after other gods. You'll dwell in the land in safety. But if you persist and continue, judgment is coming upon this nation and upon this city to make it a desolation and an astonishment. And maybe the people of Jerusalem thought, yeah, we've been hearing this for 23 years. And for 23 years, it hasn't happened. But now, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, there were ominous signs to anybody who was paying attention. The Lord had said that out of the north would come a new and great power, and by the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the Chaldeans had come from the north to make war and expand their empire through the ancient Near East, sweeping all before them. The Lord had said that Nebuchadnezzar would ascend to become king of Babylon and come against the land in terrible might and destruction. And now in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar was indeed on the throne. The Lord had said that the nation would go into captivity in Babylon, and in just the prior year, the third year of Jehoiakim, the first captives had been carried away. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who we know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At the opening of the book, the Lord compared the words of Jeremiah to an almond tree. Almond tree is the first tree to bloom, a sure sign that spring is coming, kind of like exhibition baseball games. If it's early March and it's snowing out, it could be snowing outside, but if the almond tree is blooming and they're playing baseball in Florida... Well, spring is coming. The words of Jeremiah were the first indication that the Lord was rising in righteous anger. And maybe nobody paid too much attention to a 17-year-old kid in the good old days of Josiah, but dark clouds were now gathering. So it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations 
from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I have proposed to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. In verse 3, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah in a most interesting way. The Lord says, maybe. Take a scroll. Write down the words you've been speaking over these years. Put them in one place so they can read them all together, and maybe they'll listen, and maybe turn from their evil way. Now, it sounds odd to hear the Lord talk that way. James says that known to God from eternity are all of his works. Isaiah said that the Lord makes known the end from the beginning. Logic would dictate that God would never say maybe. But the Lord God is neither defined nor confined by our logic. And as I puzzled and worked over this word in the Hebrew and in the translation, the word in the original Hebrew was used 45 times in Scripture. It is translated, perhaps, maybe, suppose. I put it up here again in Jeremiah 26.1, a similar passage, same context. Perhaps everyone would listen. Here in chapter 36, verse 7, Jeremiah repeats the same word. It may be that the people will turn from their evil way. And so I choose to take the words of Scripture and the words of the Lord at their face value. The Lord doesn't predetermine the response. The door is not closed. The end is not inevitable. Maybe the house of Judah will listen and hear this message. Maybe they'll believe and turn and repent that their iniquity might be blotted out. So Jeremiah called Baruch, who was a scribe, Baruch gets a scroll. He wrote down the words Jeremiah dictates to him. Scrolls in those days were papyrus. They were about 10 inches wide, about 30 feet long. Baruch seems to be Jeremiah's only companion in his ministry. He's from a very well-connected family, part of the aristocracy in Jerusalem. He's obviously literate, and Jeremiah trusts him. With this scroll, Baruch heads for the temple, and stood reading the words of the Lord in the temple. We're not told how long that went on. But in verse 9, we come to a remarkable day. It appears that the events recorded in verse 9 and through verse 23 all occur in one day. Uh, Yes, please. It all occurred in one day. And if not in one day in just a few days. You might have noticed as we read the events that they are rendered in great detail. A fast had been proclaimed, and the people all over Judah had come into Jerusalem. Maybe they were watching developments. Maybe they were getting uneasy. Jesus talked about people who are able to read the weather from the sky. Maybe they were able to read the times. And in verse 10, we read that Baruch read the scroll in the temple and we're told exactly where he was standing. He was in the chamber of Gamariah, the scribe. In verse 11, we're told that a man named Micaiah, who was the son of Gamariah, heard him and it concerned him and he headed for the king's house, the palace. 
And there he spoke to what we would call the king's cabinet, the princes. The princes sent Jehudai to bring Baruch back to them. We're told exactly who was there. Elishia, the scribe. Deliah. Elnathan. Gamariah. Zedekiah. They heard all these words, looked at one another in fear. God's righteous judgment was coming, and King Jehoiakim needed to know. Now, the events that we just read about occurred on the Temple Mount, where the temple and the king's power stood. I want to return our attention to the part of Jerusalem called the City of David, which has been the site of considerable study and digs by archaeologists. Three primary expeditions that I mentioned, one led by Robert McAllister in the 1920s, one led by Dame Kathleen Kenyon in the 1960s, and then the Israeli Yigog Shilov, sorry, in the 1970s. These have focused on the northern and highest part of the city of David, just south of the Temple Mount. Each expedition has, has excavated further down, looking below, further and further below the surface. And it's been said that archaeology is perhaps the most romantic of the sciences. It brings to life people in places long forgotten, and whole communities spring to, seem to spring to life anew. So what did the archaeologists find in their expeditions, and what light can this show shed on Jeremiah 36? We're going to focus for a few minutes on the area, on the excavation in the area known as Area G. As Kathleen Kenyon excavated down the hill, she came upon a structure that archaeologists call a glossy. This dated to the Jebusite period, the days of David, and is itself massive and obviously part of something yet much greater. A glossy is a stepstone structure that's built to buttress and fortify a hill, to preserve and amplify the natural advantages of the terrain, making it almost impossible for anybody to attack up. This is completely consistent with the history in 2 Samuel 5, that the Jebusites had fortified the city and boasted that the blind and the lame could defend it. And actually, how David took the city is a very interesting story that maybe we would talk about one day. The next expedition into the area was in the 1970s, and Shiloh uh, excavated below the area uncovered by Kathleen Kenyon and came upon Israeli houses that date to the 7th century B.C. In other words, those houses that he found date to exactly the time that, that we're reading about today in Jeremiah. The houses are built over the top of the glossy. Remember that the temple and the Acropolis had all moved up to Mount Moriah. Over the years, this area had become wealthy and affluent, where rich, well connected of the city lived within easy reach, within an easy commute, of the political, religious, and business center. Now, the basic floor plan of the houses is what we call a four-room house, is what they call a four-room house, for the very good reason that it had four rooms. And they are common throughout Jerusalem. 
There are three narrow rooms that sit side by side, and then there's one large room that runs in the back. Now, I'm from Baltimore, where the city is built in row houses, so we know a lot about the same build, the same house being built over and over with the same floor plan. But these houses are very much upscale. There was a second floor. You see there, and, 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 and you can see there's an outdoor stairway. And there was something else. There was a private indoor toilet separated from the house. Now, this may not impress you very much. But back then, you had to have serious money if you were going to afford such an extravagance as this. Shiloh found these houses underneath the remains of a massive fire. It was a thick layer of burnt debris in what's called stratum 10, the fallen charred beams, the wreckage of the collapsed buildings that fell in on themselves when engulfed in the flames. Jeremiah had written, Jeremiah had written that, that this king of Babylon would destroy Jerusalem by fire, and it wouldn't be just the palace and the temple, but the houses of the people as well. That was very unusual historically, to destroy not just the major structures, but, and not just those of enterprise, but the houses of the people. But so Jeremiah had prophesied, and so the archaeology confirms. And what's even more remarkable is what they found in the houses themselves. Shiloh found in the houses clay idols. A dominant theme in Jeremiah is the condemnation of the idols that populated the lands. In those days, people, people thought of gods as sort of bureaucrats. They had, we, we had to have a different idea of how we think of God and how they thought of God then. They thought of God as a God as having a particular jurisdiction, a particular territory, a particular job. Um, you know, I once heard that there were however many millions of gods, and somebody said, well, that's really, actually, when you think about it, not that many. They, they said that, that today there are, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people employed by the government. And if you need hundreds of thousands of people in the government to run the United States, well, how many, how many gods do you need to run the whole world? That's the way people looked at God, somebody you had to learn to work with, get on his good side, maybe somebody you could bribe. A god had a particular jurisdiction that he was in charge, he or she was in charge of, a house, a field, a town. There's one chapter in Jeremiah where he goes after a god who was in charge of a particular melon patch. And he just heaps scorn on this jo god whose job it was was to watch over the melon patch. Your job is to make sure the melons grow. And Jeremiah just heaps scorn on this one particular God. You have as many gods as you have towns, said Jeremiah. You have as many idols as you have streets. Look how Canaanite these figures appear. They appear as a woman, naked above the waist, with her hands cupped below her breasts. Each household had its own 
private God. This was the wealthy, the affluent, the educated part of the city, literally inside of the temple. All of what we, they found completely consistent with what was said in Jeremiah. So here we see some physical evidence for the very kind of practices that the prophets warned the Israelites about. And there's something else that Shiloh found. In one of the buildings, he found 51 bulli. Now, what are bulli? Bulli are small lumps of clay that are used for sealing scrolls. Today, if you send a letter, you fold it, you put it in an envelope, you seal the envelope, you deliver the envelope. You seal the envelope both to protect the letter and to protect the privacy. But a scroll is 10 inches wide and 30 feet long. How do you seal that? Well, you roll it up, you tie it with string, and then you put a bit of wet clay over the string. Then you imprint the clay with the mark of your stamp that maybe you wear as jewelry or maybe you wear as a ring. And anybody opening the scroll has to break the seal. That's perhaps the most famous instance of this in the Bible is Revelation 5, where there is a scroll sealed with seven seals. And during the excavation in Area G, these bulli were found. This is from Shiloh's public report, published report of his work. The first bulli were found during the sifting of the earth removed from the destruction layer on the floor of Lotus 967. The pace of the work was immediately slowed down. And through careful examination, their fine spot was determined within the narrow strip of building 967. The bulli were found scattered within the lair close to the floor in a limited area about, 50, about one square meter. 51 bulli were recovered. Two fragments were too small to be discussed profitably, while the other 49 are in good condition, probably because, unlike the friable bulli in most other sites, they were baked hard in the conflagration that destroyed the house. In other words, normally bulli don't last very long. Clay dries, and it crumbles. But in this house, the great fire that destroyed the house and destroyed the city also fired the clay and preserved them under the rubble, waiting to be found 2,500 years later. That means that in this room were kept 50-plus scrolls. The fire destroyed the, 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 the scrolls and fired the clay, which fell all in one square meter. Whoever lived here was literate, had a lot of documents, most likely an officer and a scribe. And also the inscription in the boy are ancient Hebrew script. Before being carried away into Babylon, Hebrew was, not, was written not like what you see today. When the remnant of the Jews came back after 70 years in Babylon in the, and the Gentile world, they were writing in a Hebrew script that we know today, which is quite different. So these boi date from before the captivity. 
from the very days of Jeremiah. And on the boy are people's seals and names. Now, in the names of Jeremiah, you didn't have a first name and a family name like today. Instead of a last name, you were the son of somebody. You notice that as we did chapter 36. Baruch, the son of Neriah, Jehudai, the son of Nathaniah, and Shalemiah. Today, I would be would introduce me as Thomas, the son of Alan, or Thomas, the son of Alan, the son of Frederick. Now, there's a very small pool of names that people had And they use the names over and over and over and over. And so the son of gets very repetitive. But there is one boy with a very unusual name. It is the one I have circled. And the inscription reads, Gamariah, the son of Shaphan. That might sound uh, unusual. That's an unusual name. But it should sound familiar to you. And there all the princes were sitting. Elishama, the scribe. Deliah, the son of Shammaiah. Elnathan, the son of Akbor. Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, Zechariah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, is a member of the king's inner circle, affluent, well-connected. He's a scribe and literate and would have written and sealed many scrolls. I submit to you that the archaeology in Area G of the city of David to me, it's fascinating, at least it is strong and determinative, the, the strong and dramatic confirmation of the credibility of Jeremiah that we are studying. The archaeology confirms the fire as foretold and recorded by Jeremiah. It confirms the household idols that Jeremiah preached against. It allows us to find the man who sat in the room that day and heard this scroll read. Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, a man of whom the Lord said, maybe he will listen. Maybe he will repent and believe. Maybe his example will lead others. And maybe many will be saved. Now it happened when they heard all these words, They looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king all these words. And they went to the king into the court and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll, and Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of the princes who stood beside the king. And it happened when Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the heath until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the heath. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king or any of his servants who heard all these words. That was the tipping point. That is the point where this book turns and where Jerusalem becomes a city that is awaiting destruction and judgment. 
Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, I will punish Jehoiakim, his family and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. So what can we learn from this chapter of Jeremiah 36? This is a modern story. Don't be fooled just because it happened a long time ago. What are our takeaways for today? I suggest to you that they are three, that there are three. First, there is great value in the careful, slow study of the Bible. I sometimes think that Bible study is like archaeology, slow and careful learning, looking for broad outlines, looking for small details. The New Testament compares the church to a physical building. The Apostle Paul wrote that he laid the foundation, and there's no foundation that can be laid other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We talked about that this morning. And from that foundation, Paul builds up. The writer to the Hebrews, we also talked about Hebrews this morning. Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews goes the other way. He starts with what we can see, the Old Testament priesthood and ceremony. He excavates below that to the new covenant. He excavates below that to the new, to the new sacrifice. Finally, he gets to bedrock which is Jesus Christ. And if I can be permitted a a, a personal word and get up on a soapbox, I believe that this hour is a great opportunity for the expansion of our minds and the exercise of our intellect. It is always essential to repeatedly tell the gospel and the basics of our faith, but church should not be some theological echo chamber where everybody memorizes one set of dogma and knows the right answers and we just come all here and say what we've all heard and we all know. This should be a time when we're all pushing out further and digging deeper and reaching for more that satisfies our minds and renews our spirits. You and me, we have a scroll on which are written the words of the Lord for us to hear and believe. And as a church body, we study together, and we work together, and we learn together, and we strive together to uncover the truths of the Scriptures. So in the words of Jeremiah, we can understand, know and understand the Lord. And that is the greatest discovery of all. Second, don't ever confuse religion with repentance and discipleship. The people of Jerusalem were very religious. They declared a fast. They gathered at the temple. They heard the word of the Lord read. They checked all the religious boxes. But nothing happened. Nothing changed in their life. And I fear for people in America today who just go to church, check their intellect at the door, hear the word of God, and nothing they see or hear changes them. I fear for Christians who come to church and sometimes check their intellect at the door, hear the word of God, and nothing changes. The temple was built on Mount Moriah at a place picked by David. And there he wanted to offer a sacrifice to consecrate the spot. And a generous man offered to give him the wood and the the oxen, but David refused the gift. 
And he insisted on paying for the wood and the oxen and said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. You know, religion costs you next to nothing. Some time, some observances, big deal, next to nothing. Religion is easy. Discipleship is hard. Religion is cheap. Discipleship costs. Don't ever confuse them. Finally, in Jeremiah 36.3, the Lord said, maybe the people will hear. Maybe they will listen. Maybe they will repent and turn to me and be saved. And I submit he says the same today. Whether it is a call to discipleship, a call to salvation, maybe, maybe he will hear, maybe she will listen, maybe they will turn. Thank you very much for your gracious invitation to have me today. I trust that these thoughts are challenging to you as they are to me that we would together listen and hear and be renewed in our quest of discipleship and understanding to know the Lord and then to know him better. Let's pray, and then our meeting will be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the grace that you have given to us. We thank you for your for, for your, your gracious salvation. We thank you for your word, for the truth over the centuries. We thank you for every opportunity we have to consider it, to consider him, and to indeed travel back to these days and see what we can find. Father, we pray that we would have ears to listen. We would have hearts to respond. You would open our minds that we would strive together even as your spirit strives to serve you in all things, to be found pleasing to you. Now we give thanks to you for this day, and we pray that you would sanctify and glorify it as we wait for your son. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be with you. Have a wonderful Sunday.